A couple of weeks ago, we finished up a, a marriage series, and maybe as we were talking through this series, you know, some of you, you were thinking, you're not married yet, and you're thinking about your future wedding, what that may look like for you. And then others of us who, who have been married, and, and we, we married maybe a few years ago or many years ago, we were reminded of what the wedding day was like. Because there's so much that goes into planning for a wedding, right? I mean, you got to have resources, you got to have money, you, you got to invite people to come, you got to agree on the people you're going to invite to come to this wedding. You got to find a venue, and maybe you got to find a caterer, and there's all this stuff. I mean, there's a stress, there's strain, there's in laws, all this stuff you have to deal with. But then when the wedding day comes, there's all of these expectations, right? So all of these things you've been working on just kind of pile on in that moment. And, and there's these expectations. Like we expect people to show up. We expect it not to rain. We expect the flowers to not wilt while we're up there on, in front of everybody. I mean, there are these expectations that we carry into this wedding day. We expect when we get home with all those envelopes, there's some big checks that have been written, right? <laughs> these are the things that we expect when it comes to, to weddings. This morning, we are going to look at a wedding that took place in Scripture and the expectations that were there around this particular wedding. Today, we continue our series called H2O. If you weren't here last week, I know somebody said it was a baptism series. It's not a baptism series. We're talking about baptism a little bit within this series. This is a series about Jesus. As we head into Easter, this is a series about Jesus and the connections that we find in his story with water. And so last week we talked about the baptism of Jesus. And this week we're going to talk about this, this miracle that happens at this wedding with some water. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend our time today. John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. We'll put the scripture up here on the screens. If you have your Journey Church app, you can follow along there. You can also follow along on your program and take notes today. But John chapter 2, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. We have a setting. We have this wedding that's taken place, this, this celebration that's happening. It says it's happening on the third day, which in the, the Hebrew calendar would have meant it was a Tuesday that this was beginning on. And, and we already know part of the guest list, right? We got Mary, who is Jesus' mom, and then we have Jesus, and it says his disciples. At this point, he doesn't have his 12. He's only got five, okay? He's only chosen five here, so it's like Jesus plus five for the wedding, okay? So here's what we have for our setting. Verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Mary knows a secret. And so as we read this event that takes place, we find that Mary is very connected to, to this family. Now, we don't know if it's a family member who's getting married. We don't know if it's a family friend who's getting married. But Mary is in on the know. She knows that they have run out of wine, which would have meant there had been very poor planning for this particular wedding. Weddings in that culture were central to village life. I mean, this was a celebration. This was a, a big deal within villages at that time. There was eating and dancing and drinking. I mean, there was a big, big party that was thrown when people were married. And it was so important that the bride and groom were actually called the king and queen. 
And so anything they said during the wedding time, during the wedding period, it, it kind of went. I mean, they, they sort of had this power. And, and for poorer village people, this was big. They, they could kind of act like they were royalty for, for these moments of while this wedding is taking place. Now, when we think about a wedding, we think maybe half a day, right? Maybe a full day, depending on where this wedding is. These weddings were not one day long. They were usually seven days long. So dads, the daughters, that's a lot of checks to be writing, right? Especially if you have more than, than one girl in, in your home. But anyway, um, this is a big old party. And every single day, new guests are arriving. And so that means more food and more drink and more money that has to be spent on this wedding ceremony. But here's the deal. There is a key to every single wedding. Wine. Every Jewish feast, wine was really central to what was taking place within that feast. And when it came to weddings, wine was central to that party. In fact, some of the rabbis would say this. Without wine, there is no joy. Some of you in this room, <laughs> without wine, there is no joy. When you're planning for a wedding, you had to have seven days worth of wine. And that was because this was a social expectation. And as the family who's having this wedding, you had to fulfill those expectations. Here's what happened if you didn't. If you ran out of wine before the wedding ceremony, this wedding event was over with, this was a shame culture. You were made fun of. You were laughed at. You were ridiculed. Your family was looked down upon. And so we have this social situation that is happening that Jesus is a part of and Mary knows about. And so Mary comes to Jesus and is like, Jesus, we got a big problem. They have no more wine. And she knows the shame that this will cause this family. Look at verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. We read that, we're kind of like... <laughs> you angry, bro? Because it sounds like you're angry, Jesus. I think there's a few things that we can probably think uh, this response means. One, Jesus may feel fed up. Uh, you know, when, when, you're, when you're young and you're single and you go to a wedding, sometimes you're looking for somebody to meet there, right? And maybe someone to meet and hang out with and to dance with. Maybe your future spouse. Some of you, maybe you met your, your spouse at a wedding. Or maybe you're thinking about your future wedding. And, and so you go to this wedding and there's sort of these, these things that you're pretty excited about that, that are happening there. Think about Jesus for a moment, okay? He's 30 years old at this time. He should have been married by this point, okay? Based on culture. He goes to a wedding. Hey, Jesus, got a girlfriend? Hey, Jesus, when you get married? Hey, Jesus... Gertrude over there, she's got a great personality. I think you guys would fit. So, so there, there's these expectations, right? Jesus is there, and, and maybe he's just kind of fed up, right? That, that's one, one response that we may have towards what was happening here. Another one may be Jesus has just separated himself from his mom. A mom comes up and is like, hey, Jesus, I got something for you to do. And he's like, mom, look, I'm 30 years old. Leave me alone. I'm my own boss. I got a group of guys over here who are, are following me. I mean, you're kind of embarrassing me here. So maybe he feels embarrassed. Again, these are responses I think you and I would have, but, but Jesus' response in this moment is, of course, much deeper. He's basically telling Mary, you really do not know who I am. You do not know 
who I am. Jesus is thinking about his future, but it's not about a marriage. It's not about a family. It's not even about what's happening right there in, in that moment. He's thinking about his future that God has set out for him. Mom says, hey, we don't have enough wine. And Jesus basically responds with, it's not my time to die yet. When he says those words, my hour has not yet come, he's saying, it's not my time to die yet. It's not my time to, to take the steps that God has set before me. Because they're pretty big steps and pretty big plans that God has for Jesus. Sometimes we read those words there and we think he's being disrespectful. He's really not He's just responding to his mom. It's kind of like saying, lady or mom, why, why, are you, why are you asking me this? But in the end, what he's really getting to is, mom, there, there's something way bigger than this party running out of wine. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Typical mom, right? He's like, mom, this is really deep. This is, let me just tell you about what's going on. She's like, I don't care. Do whatever he tells you. He's like, Mom, no. Yep, you do whatever he tells you. So mom doesn't give up as most moms don't. And we talked about moms a little bit last week. But anyway, uh, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. We, we see here we have these six really big stone jars that are nearby, and these really were for ceremonial washing, uh, for purifying your, your physical body. Used for two main purposes. One was to clean your feet. All right? In that culture, there were no, um, no sidewalks. There, there was no asphalt. You were walking on dirt. Uh, when it rained, your feet were really muddy. I mean, you wore sandals. And, and so when you would go into someone's home, you would go into a building, you would go to the temple, you would have to clean your feet. And so these jars were there, these big old jars, again, 20, 30 pounds, or gallons of water. You would stick your feet in there and you'd wash your feet. Or you'd use it to wash your hands. Some of the Jewish people were, were very, and I don't mean this in a negative way, were very OCD with how they washed their hands. And in fact, um, there was a specific way you had to wash your hands. And so they would wash their hands in, in these jars before they would eat their meal. Some of them were so strict that they would actually wash their hands between courses in the meal. And so this was a place that you, you washed your body. And so there are these six stone jars nearby. And Jesus tells these servants, go fill these things with water. These servants are probably thinking, well, maybe there's more guests that are coming that we don't know about. Again, Jesus' family seems to be pretty connected to the people there at this wedding, whose wedding it is. And so maybe they're just saying, oh, we're just, we're just getting this set because there's more people that are coming. They're not really thinking about what's getting ready to happen here. Verse 8 says, Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And so they take this cup to, again, what they call here the master of, of the banquet, and something has happened. The, this water that's in that stone, these stone jars, all of a sudden has changed. It's been turned into wine. Look at the rest of verse 9 into verse 10. It says, He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then a cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This master of the banquet, we'd probably call them the event coordinator today. Um, their job was to make sure the party was a party. 
And their, their job was to make sure that everybody had fun, that everything was, was going the way that it was supposed to go. I mean, they were very organized, except there wasn't enough wine, right? And, and so he gets this water, and he tasted it, and, and now it has turned into wine. And what does he say? He says, this is the best wine that we've had so far. See, again, like he says there, in that culture, when you were having a wedding, you gave your best wine at the beginning when everybody was sober, right? And then you would put in the cheaper stuff as the day went along, as the week went along, because people were kind of getting used to it at that point. He says, you have given us the best wine, and you've saved it for last. When we think about this story... You know, what do, we, what do we see here? What is, what is Jesus doing through this miracle? He's saving this family. He's saving this couple from shame. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's becoming their savior. He's saving them from, from disaster. I love what Reynolds Price, uh, he's passed away, but he used to be a Duke English professor. He, he wrote these words. He says, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, who would invent the inaugural sign of Jesus' career being a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? Because that's really what's happening here. Jesus is doing this big miracle because this is a catering disaster, right? You're supposed to have specifically enough wine for people to enjoy throughout the week of this ceremony. And what does Jesus end up doing? He ends up saving this family from shame by turning the water into wine. Wouldn't you have done something bigger? Like heal someone who was lame? Uh, make a, a dead dude come back to life? Walk across some water? I mean, those are the miracles. They're like, whoa, that's incredible. And, and Jesus begins by turning water into wine. But I think this miracle fits perfectly with the life of of Jesus. Uh, let's again, let, let's kind of think about what's going on here in this miracle. This is a miracle that's all about expectations. Uh, there, there are wedding expectations, right? The people that are coming to this wedding, they expect certain things. They're expecting good eats. They're expecting good friendship. They're expecting good dancing. They're expecting good wine. I mean, they're coming to this ceremony and this, this wedding celebration, and they have expectations as they come to this place to, to celebrate with this couple and to celebrate with these families. The bride and groom also have expectations, too. In that culture, um, you would get engaged, okay? And engagement was like marriage. You know, the only way to get out of engagement was to divorce. Uh, and these engagements, they would last about six months to, to almost a year. And, uh, and during that time, basically negotiations are happening. The groom's family is negotiating with the bride's family of how much it will cost to to relieve that family of the bride because the, the bride was, was worth so much to the family life and now she was going to be leaving. And so the, the groom's family is trying to figure out how much can we give you so we kind of, it's like a, sadly, like a car negotiation that's kind of happening here. But this is what we see is happening. Now, here's the other part to this. During this whole, whole time period, the bride and groom-to-be never see each other. Never see each other. It's not like, today's culture where people test drive before they marry, right? That didn't happen. 
And so there's these expectations that the bride and groom are bringing on that wedding day. I mean, maybe they saw each other a year prior. Now they get to see each other again. Can you kind of imagine what that's like in that moment? And so we have these wedding expectations that are there. Excitement, happiness, a celebration. Lots of expectations going into the wedding. But then there's expectations for Jesus. This party needs something. It needs a miracle. And mom, mom knows who can perform this miracle. She knows Jesus can do this. And so there's expectations for Jesus. What does she say? She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I imagine she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And then she turns and walks away. Because there's an expectation there for him that Jesus will make something happen, that Jesus will create this miracle and will have what we need. And so there's, there's an expectation for Jesus here. But then I also think there's Jesus' expectations of himself. He knows God's big plans for him. And it's not to turn water into wine. It's the future he knows that he's got this life that he's got to live and this ministry that he's beginning and these teachings that he's going to give. He knows that death is coming. Jesus knows this is, this is on the horizons. This is on the future for him. And so there are these expectations that Jesus, I think, is probably placing on himself in that moment. Now, now, when he responds to his mom in that way, like, hey, you don't know what time it is or it's not my time to die. Is he saying, I don't want to do this yet? I, I'm not real sure about that. But I do believe he knows what the expectations are for him. And he knows what the future holds. And again, it's not just to turn some water into wine. It's to transform lives. It's to cleanse souls. When we look through the book of John, there's a lot of symbolism throughout it. And we see quite a bit of it here in this particular passage, in this, this event that takes place. First, we have these six stone cleansing jars. That number six in the Jewish, in the Jewish faith means unfinished it means imperfect and those jars of course are, are symbolic of, of humanity of, of people and so here we have Jesus who in this moment when he, he takes these these cleansing jars and says put water into it and he turns it into wine Jesus is saying hey this is kind of symbolic first of of how unfinished and imperfect that humanity is and yet here's what I'm coming to do I, I'm coming to purify you. I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to cleanse you. That, that you don't need to clean your body anymore. You don't need to try to clean yourself to, for, for my presence or for God's presence. Because I'm going to take care of that. And that's because of the expectation that is there for Jesus to give his life. And, and honestly, this is foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' future. That those big plans are that Jesus, Jesus will turn water into wine. And that water is us. And that wine is, is his life that he will give for humanity to cleanse us from our imperfections that we have. And so we see that symbolism that is here in the story. And, and that's the expectation that Jesus is carrying with him throughout his life. But then there's another expectation here. And it's a, a question that you and I, I believe, have to ask ourselves. What is our expectation of Jesus what's your expectation of Jesus what's my expectation of Jesus because I think many times we don't see Jesus as our savior we see Jesus as our, our fixer 
Your marriage is crumbling. Jesus will build it back up. Your relationships are, are broken. Jesus will repair them. Your, your finances are taking a tumble. Hey, don't worry about it. Jesus will put extra zeros in, in your bank account. Temptations are there. Jesus will, will take them away. Hey, you got a zit? Jesus will heal it for you. You got a big test tomorrow that you haven't studied for? Don't worry about it. Jesus is going to get you an A. Oh, oh you have, uh, you've run out of wine here at this party? Hey, Jesus will turn the water into wine. I think many times we do not see Jesus as our Savior. We see Jesus as a fixer. And so when problems come and issues arise, hey, it's going to be okay. Jesus will take care of that. Jesus will handle that. I've got everything else. I, I can take care of every other aspect of my life. Or, or when life is good, I'm like, I'm good. I mean, I kind of have this connection with Jesus, but it's not that big a deal because my finances look great. My job is wonderful. My relationships, they're rocking. I mean, everything's incredible. And many times we just go to Jesus when we need something to be fixed. It's not the way this works. Jesus offers us so much more than fixing our problems and fixing the issues that we may face in life. I love what Jesus says a little bit later on in John. In John 10.10, he says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't say, hey, I came to fix your problems. I came to fix the issues in your life. He's not the plumber who comes in and fixes the plumbing when there's a leak, right? He says, no, I came to give you life. That's so much different than I came to fix something. I came to give you life, and not just to give you life, but to give it abundantly, to give it to you to the, to the fullest, so you can enjoy life, so you can enjoy the celebration that is, that is what life is all about. I came to give you life more abundantly, to be your Savior, not just to fix some things. One of my favorite things uh, to do on a wedding day is... Um, especially in a, a church setting because many times maybe you were married in a church or you've been to a wedding in a church you know they'll, they'll close the doors right before the the bride walks out and when everything's set they'll open those doors in that moment and there she is what I like to do in that moment is is when those doors get ready to open I actually look at the groom because the day before he was pretty tough he's a big guy right and even moments before the ceremony happens, he's talking big, you know, everybody's giving chest bumps and everything's wonderful. It's a great time. They're high-fiving. It's wonderful, incredible experience. When that door opens, almost every single time I look over and tears are starting to well up in that guy's eyes. And some of them just lose it. I mean, these big dudes just bawling their eyes out right there in that moment. And, and they haven't had anything to drink before then, so I know it's legit, Okay. And so there's this moment, and that door opens, and he looks, and he's just crying, and he's tearing up, and he's looking at her. And that's the moment where all of these expectations have kind of come to fruition. All of this planning, all of the resources, all the time, all the conversations, all the strain, all the stress, all the in-laws, all everything, right there in that moment. And he sees her, and he realizes all of these expectations have finally come to fruition. And in that moment, as he's looking at her, he's thinking to himself, this is it. She, she is mine. I'm at this point where I just want to lay my, my, myself down at her feet. I would, I would give my life for her. 
And I love that image that's there because if you look in Scripture, if you look in the New Testament, we find over and over and over again that Jesus is called the groom and the church is called the bride. And if we take that, that imagery there, when, when Jesus sees us, it's not like, hey, I'm here to fix things for you. Can you give me a punch list and I'll take care of that? I'll be out of here in a day. Everything will be fine. Jesus says, no, 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 I love you. I care for you. You're important to me. I, as we talked in the marriage series, I'm going to submit myself to you by dying on that cross. In fact, Jesus says, I did that. And there are no expectations that have to be met in, anymore. You, you don't have to clean your hands and your feet in those ceremonial cleansing jars in, anymore. You're good. I've taken care of that. This is the celebration. This, this is the connection that we now have. I am the groom and you are the bride. And when we realize that every day that we live, it's a wedding party. And every day that we live, guess what? We get to drink the best wine there is. Why? Because it comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I, I, I am your groom and I care for you, and I love you, and those expectations, just let them go, because I'm here for you, and I will always give you the very best. I will always give you the best wine, and this celebration, man, it lasts for a lifetime. In fact, it lasts for eternity, but that means you and I have to make some choices in our life, that, that I think there's some invitations that are there. For some of us, the invitation is that there's a wedding. And you know what? You're invited to that wedding. I, I think for, for many people, we struggle with that when it comes to Jesus. We, we, we think in, in our minds we have to, to get to this place of perfection, that we have to get to this place of where we've got our life just right, that we're, we're just enough in control that we can, then, we can then say, hey, I'm gonna follow Christ. That's not how this works. What does Jesus do here in this miracle? He turns water into wine. He saves this family from shame within that culture. Maybe you're carrying some shame. Maybe you're carrying some guilt and, and some pain. And you're like, I'd really like to be a part of this wedding, but look at who I am. And Jesus says, I don't care. You're invited. I, I don't care about your past. I, I don't care about the decisions you've made and the choices that, that you've had. I don't care about that. Whatever shame you have, let it go. Here's the deal. You're invited to this wedding. And man, it is going to be an amazing party because it's a celebration. Oh, and here's the better part. You're going to have the best wine for all eternity. Maybe for some of us today, we have to be reminded that we are invited to this wedding. And on this, this wedding that we're invited to, there is, there's an RSVP. And for us, we would say that's this step that we take of, of baptism. Last week, I had uh, a couple of people came up to me. It's like, hey, we want to we take that step. We want to follow through. We want to be all in. And maybe there's more of us today that are like, you know what? This is a step that we need to take. I want to I be a part of that party. Whether you have that shame there or not, this is a part of our spiritual journey and our next step toward Christ. If that's where you are, there's a connection card in the seat in front of you. Take that out. Put your information on it. Just mark, I want to be baptized. It doesn't mean you have to be baptized. It means we'll have a conversation with you about that. 
We'll, we'll talk about that and answer any questions you may have. And let's see where God leads you. Because here's the deal. You've been invited to the wedding. And there's an RSVP. And here's a way that you can go. For others of us in here, we're followers of Christ. But we, all, we always have to be reminded that, um, that we're a part of that wedding ceremony. That's what our days are like, and yet we still treat Jesus like the fixer. And when we need help, and when things aren't going the way we want them to, then we call on Christ. That's not how this works. We're always a part of the celebration. We're always a part of this wedding ceremony. And we have to be reminded of that daily, that we get to partake of the best wine every single day. That Christ is in our lives, which means we live that out, not just when times are tough and when we need things fixed and when we carry these expectations, but when life is great and wonderful and everything seems to be flowing. Because those are the moments God can use us to change and transform the lives of others. Whoever we are, we are a part of that wedding ceremony. We've been invited to join in, or we get to experience it every day. And in the end, Jesus says, here's the deal. I will give you the best wine to drink. And the reason for that is pretty simple. As we head into our communion time this morning, I want to read to you Mark chapter 14, verse 23 through 25. It says, then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In this moment, Jesus says, you remember that miracle that took place about three years ago when I turned that water into some of the best wine anybody had ever drank? Hey, guess what? I am that wine. I am that drink offering to you. And so my, my body that I'm, in this moment, I'm getting ready to give up for you is, is showing you this love that I have. That you don't have to wash your body again. You don't have to wash your hands or your feet. I'm taking care of that for you. I am that drink for you, the best wine. Now you have to choose whether you want to drink for me or not. And so we're invited to take that step for some of us. And others just be reminded of the love that Christ had for us. That it's like that wedding day that he saw us as those doors open. And he said, I laid down my life for you. Now will you follow me? And in this moment right here, we take this bread and we take this juice. And we're reminded of that love. That love that God has for you and for me. That love that was so powerful that he gave Christ to us. And Jesus says, you get to drink from the best wine. Right now we're going to take communion as a church community. And my prayer is that we just kind of focus on that today. That, that we celebrate that. That we are part of that as we take the bread and the juice. Maybe today you just need prayer. Maybe you, you're struggling with shame or guilt. Our prayer team is going to be back here in this back corner just go back and let them pray for you. Maybe you just need prayer for, for life or just need some encouragement. Now make sure you go back there. Let them pray for you today. But for all of us, let's always be reminded that we are part of something bigger than ourselves and that the wine that Christ offers us is the best there is.